This is Women Authors of Achievement podcast, episode 34, with guest Nicole Butner. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Daria Suvorova, and welcome to the show. Today, I speak to entrepreneur, economist, and tech optimist, Nicole Butner. Nicole is the founder of Mirantix Labs, where she's working on solutions to enable companies to unlock the value of artificial intelligence across all industries. She believes AI has the potential to create a positive impact on individuals, businesses, and society, where people can rediscover what is the essence of being human, in part thanks to artificial intelligence. In today's episode, we speak about her political career, renaissance of humanity, and how can companies plan and prepare for integrating AI into their work streams. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else where you're listening to your podcast. In the meantime, enjoy the podcast. Hello, Nicole. Great to meet you once again in person after actually some time since the last time we saw each other and today to speak about Renaissance of Humanity. <laughs> Thanks, Daria. Really happy to be here. Now, looking back, how did your interest evolve gradually from economics into politics and then tech and artificial intelligence? Was it gradual? Was it sudden? I think like the, the political side of it basically was born a little bit before university even. So I grew up with parents who were always very hands-on. So if you don't like something, you kind of don't complain, but you do something about it. So I think that's sort of a first impulse you might have, or maybe many people share who go into politics, right? Doing something about what surrounds you and how you can impact it. So I was in student politics at school, but then also, uh, and more intensely at university, in, in university politics, it was the time when basically bachelor and master's degrees were introduced in Europe. So the whole Bologna reform was implemented and there was a lot going on how to operationalize this, how to uh, still create, you know, great uh, university programs for students, how to make teaching excellency a point, et cetera, et cetera. There was a lot of points and I, I was really passionate about that and I, I loved it. And I think that was my, my first real involvement with politics. And from then, I basically also started being interested in national politics. I studied actually in Switzerland where student politics is not political, so you don't have parties. Um, it's different to Germany, for example. And But at the same time, I was interested in how to implement some of these concepts I was learning in my studies of economics, what monetary policy, economic policy, etc. And I basically um, joined the Liberal Party in Germany pretty early on, like some 20 years ago or something. God, it seems like a long time ago, but I think that's pretty accurate, actually. <laughs> So, yeah, I joined during my bachelor studies and I, I was just passionate about, you know, seeing how this would play out and, and work. And then in my early professional life, right, I started working in 2008 when basically the whole financial system went down the drain on September 15th, actually, when, Goldman, when uh, Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. And then you had another dimension of basically politics and economics intersecting because all of a sudden governments had to you know, do monetary politics, you know, the financial system went pretty much um, haywire and you saw central banks and governments intervening. And it was kind of like, obviously very harsh for many people and their economic reality, but also intellectually very interesting what was going on and how this actually worked in real life and how much of the theory also didn't work out. <laughs> As a political being, I was actually living in a lot of different places and that doesn't make your political career easier. Because politics is a very local business. And I was actually not living in Germany for, um, I moved from Germany when I was 17 to start university. And I, I basically only moved back 
when I was, now I have to do some math fast in my head. <laughs> I was maybe 28 or something mm -hmm. like that. So um, a so lot of... you were the, in Switzerland most of the time. I was in Switzerland. I was in Paris. I was in the States. I was in India. I was in Austria. I was in Belgium. I was in a lot of places. I was in Sweden. And that is usually hard for you to then really be present in a game that is at the end, right? A local game. It, during my time in Paris, there was basically a group from my party that was active in Paris and that, where I stayed in touch. But yeah, I really then connected again when my base moved to Munich. Actually, jumping in 2019, you were among the top candidates for the 2019 European elections mm -hmm. and have been representing the Baden-Württemberg, hope I pronounced it correctly, <laughs> Very well. FDP party. All this you did parallel to leading your own venture also at that time. I mean, how were you balancing all those plates? You know, you have to be passionate about what you do. I always was driven by by interest, by by passion, by wanting to create impact, by curiosity, trying to learn things. And I think in politics, again, it's it's very opportunity driven as it is when you start your venture, right? It's not like something you can plan super well. You have an idea and then you kind of have to start getting it off the ground. And now is always better than tomorrow. And those two ideas just kind of coincided. But I think the impact I was trying to have with both of them, right, was, and it's an impulse that carries through to today, is basically understanding how we can build better technology in Europe and in Germany. And there, I think both worlds are quite essential of what are the actual frameworks we're using, what are the actual conditions in our economy, but also what do actual tech, concrete tech solutions look like? How do I build this operationally, etc.? So for me, it was quite intermeshed. I didn't feel like I was handling two different lives, but I can, yeah, I can see how that might look very contrasting. No, but still, I believe like it probably takes a while and quite a lot of time to be among the top candidates for um, European elections. That probably has to come with a lot of preparations, lots of work. Yeah, I mean, I was also, you also have to, I mean, it's also luck, right? Like a lot of things in life. So I basically ran for the state level elections um, some three years earlier. I was a candidate there. And then, you know, my true interest, I graduated from a European school. I've lived in all these countries. And also actually tech policy is mostly determined on a European level. So that for me, for the topics I'm working on is, is for me, one of the most interesting political levels. And so for me, it was, there was an opening basically, right? It's a lot of coincidences that have to occur that you can get into that position and um yeah it was it was a great experience i mean it was a lot of uh, fun a lot of work um and just a great campaigning for like liberal tech ideas and so on it's great you could have still pushed for technology on the regulatory and political level but you decided to go and kind of start your own venture again and how come i guess i'm very impatient and the political game, I think, is a is a game that requires a little bit more patience than I had at the time, right? I'm and I'm I'm not saying I I wouldn't go back or you know I'm not considering that, but at the time it seemed to me okay this opportunity is closed, right? These election cycles are five years long, so it was just like for me also as an entrepreneur. I mean, I was already running my own company at the time while I was campaigning, and as an entrepreneur, it's just not a reality to take like five years off your job, right? You have to then continue building your business thinking about how how your venture evolves. And um, yeah, and then my way carried me basically to Marantix into this venture studio to, to start a new company, which was great. How do you think it also equipped you? I mean, what, what knowledge did you bring to Marantix Labs? 
I think a lot of different things collided. I mean, first of all, right, I moved from finance, um, then more into a tech role. Um, I worked for Auctionomics for three years and headed their their business development. This is a Palo Alto-based tech company, essentially. Tech in like game theory and auction theory, really nerdy economic stuff, which I love. <laughs> And which basically showed me it's it's so much fun working with developers and engineers. And I really loved, I'd never had anything to do really with tech before, right? Beyond using my laptop kind of. And I just loved creating, you know, on projects, new um, solutions and understanding their impact um, and communicating this to people. So I was like, wow, this is great. I want more of this. Um, so that motivated me first to go into the tech field. And I think my experience so far have kind of, all proven to be very valuable, right? I came from finance, so all this analytics, understanding, let's say, business models and financial models well kind of helps when you start a business. Then understanding, I would say, how to communicate this to decision makers because I was immediately, I mean, my former boss won the Nobel Prize on this topic. So he's he was kind of in front of a lot of re very, very relevant decision makers, right? Fortune 500 companies globally um, and a lot of uh, governments, et cetera. And so to translate very complex technical matters into a boardroom situation also turned out to be very useful when you're building a company because you, especially in the tech sector where you have to make sure this is relevant, the knowledge you're trans transferring. And then, I don't know, politics, I mean, there are also a lot of new things you have to get into very quickly. Um, you know, you're debating a lot. You're also trying to convince people. It's basically pitching mode, just <laughs> you're not pitching a product but yourself or your political idea. It's a lot of traveling, right? You have also, you're managing a lot of different stakeholders, I would say, at different levels and still also operating then at a more conceptual abstraction level. So it's 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 a whole, I would say, bunch of fun stuff that turned out to be useful in the end. Usually when we're confronted with topics of machine learning and artificial intelligence, I have a typical group of people representing that topic. And they're very techy, very nerdy, maybe, very much working on this with like-minded people. And it's just so interesting and I think so helpful when we speak of AI as, a, as being the future technology for society, when we have people coming in maybe with political background, maybe with philosophical background, maybe with other topics which are as relevant as tech background. Totally, you know, and I think um, actually even in the way we build products, and we'll probably um, touch upon this later, but when you want to create really impactful machine learning products or companies, like there is something like a dual PhD problem, and probably it's not a dual, it's probably triple or quadruple, but you need um, people who are like extreme domain experts, you need people who are extreme machine learning experts, you need people with good business acumen, right? It's like composing a little band of, you know, a little rock band. <laughs> <laughs> and you need, you know, like different, different positions to kind of work in sync. Um, and And I, I, I completely agree. I completely second that we need all different components to create meaningful and impactful products. So how does your rock band uh, looks like at Mirantix and Mirantix Labs? <laughs> and what's the difference between the two? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. So Mirantix is basically a company, it's basically a venture studio that um, was founded by Adrian Erasmus in 2016 and with the mission to build AI companies out of Europe and out of Berlin. And they basically approached me um, in late 2018 and said, hey, why don't you join us at Morantix and start a new venture here? And I basically, well, I wasn't so sure and it's kind of more in southern Germany and thinking, oh, Berlin, let's see. 
And um, I'm very happy I'm, I, I made this decision because I was running actually a company out of Zurich, um, bootstrapped, you know, quite successful because uh, cash positive and quite a good lifestyle. And, you know, it's a growing market. It's kind of blue ocean when you're doing these AI projects. Uh, but something about the mission really resonated with me, right? To build it bigger. I had not worked with um, in a VC funded environment before. I thought that was really interesting. I liked their purpose. They're people I trusted. I still trust, obviously, until today. And yeah, I thought, why not? Let's let's go. Let's try this on. And then I founded basically uh, Merantix Labs, which is the arm of Merantix that carries this knowledge of creating data and AI-driven business models into existing organizations. So I'm building a service provider that works with big DAX companies, SMEs, and tries to build basically scalable solutions to bring not only new companies into the world, that's what Merantix does, but also make sure that the rest of the economy uh, can leverage this technology and transform their business models. Before we speak about the companies that you work with and some of the solutions, I mean, I feel like we need to cover a bit of the basics, you know, the fun fundamentals, um, I would even say. What is, in essence, AI and machine learning? You can also explain what are some of the misunderstanding people have about this topic? Yeah, I mean, AI is kind of this dream, right? It's, it's like this utopia and dystopia at the same time that was created basically in the 50s when a bunch of researchers wanted to create computers that could solve human-like tasks, problem solving, take decisions, etc. And essentially, that's the power of machine learning is um, not to basically have a um, hard program, hard-coded rule. Like a calculator is a very good example of a hard-coded rule. You have an addition or a multiplication, you enter two data points, you apply a rule and you get a result. And um, a lot of these rules are so complex that you could never write them down. So use cases around facial recognition, right? Everything around images is so complex. If you want to find Daria in all the images in the world, imagine how many rules you would have to define. It's basically not humanly possible. So that's when the power of machine learning is very, very uh, great. And that's when basically also like it started with images, basically a lot of these unstructured data points um, around images and now more texts also. And now you have a lot of these applications in medical imaging, etc., finding patterns essentially in these data, in these large, large, large data sets. And it could be finding Daria and Nicole and differentiating them. It could be finding a cancer cell or not. It could be finding um, text, regulatory text that are applicable for your business, right? It could be very, very different things. But this it, it's basically um, also very strong at some tasks that are very repetitive and I would say one misconception is that we will soon have an AI that is smarter than the human being and take over the planet and so on. AI is really good in very narrow use cases. So distinguishing between you and me or between a blueberry muffin and a chihuahua, on average, a machine learning algorithm is better than a human being. A human, humans make about 5% of errors. And since 2015, basically, machine learning models are becoming better at these things than humans. But... Right? There is much more to human cognition than these simple, narrow tasks. right? And, and so combining that into a full package of human being and problem solving and dealing with ambiguity, that's so much more complex than what we're seeing right now. I'm just thinking of those legal texts um, with all those exception to exception and this ambiguous language which is set there on purpose so the lawyers can use it in their own advantage depending on the situation. Can AI actually already make use and 
support us in those legal texts and, and to find the right clauses and differentiate between different clauses? Yes. Um, so those are things that, that you can do, state of the art. But obviously, so if two lawyers cannot agree on the same clause, also a machine learning model will not be able to uh, differentiate because at the end of the day, you're feeding a model with expert knowledge in some sort of way, right? Think of images. I'm basically putting labels on those images. I'm saying, this is Dario, this is Nicole. I do this a lot of times. It's the same with a legal text. I need a lawyer to say, this is this clause I'm looking for. And if two senior partners at a law firm can't agree that this is the clause, the ground truth, so to speaking, is not, is not there because it's not an unambiguous case. This is really relevant, for example, also for medical use cases when you're thinking of diagnostics, right? But um, uh, for sure, I mean, it's, it's, it's made by humans. <laughs> and so that's something that we're trying to pay a lot of attention to is not to bake all human biases in because with this technology, right, one of the advantages and one of the dangers is the scalability, right? If I make a mistake in one of my contracts in a law firm, then I'm impacting one client and maybe it's a really big client and obviously it's never good, but I stay sort of at the scale of one probably, maybe two or three or whatever. But if I bake it into an AI system, then the scale immediately becomes huge, right? If I, if I spread false information in a local newspaper, that's one thing. If I spread it on social media, all of a sudden the whole world has access to it. So this, the matter of scale, I think, makes it powerful and also why we have to be careful with it. How do people get trained in also the companies that you work with? Maybe you can speak a little bit about that. With whom do you work and what kind of solutions do you integrate with some of the companies? And how do you make sure that the people who take over and to the people you hand over this work, they are trained and can really make the right use of this technology? Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, we basically help our clients to, from the first ideation to sort of completely operationalizing systems. And I think the question you're raising is that of responsibility, ultimately, right? And I agree in the sense that There are still humans who have to take responsibility for these models. So, for example, right, you can work on these cases with um, mobility providers that are working on autonomous driving cars. Obviously, there are a lot of cameras and sensors and cars that basically record what's going on with your car, where you're going, how fast you're going, how fast you're braking, etc. on an ongoing basis. This doesn't mean that this data goes automatically into your model and then the model becomes better magically. There are a lot of well-trained engineers that look at, okay, what are the scenarios after these 200,000 kilometers of road, maybe just highway, does the system still recognize humans, right? Or has the data been too biased towards one scenario, just Autobahn? <laughs> All these sort of things. So you need, obviously, like people who um, understand the data well, who can engineer it well, who can understand model architecture well, understand how to effectively test and evaluate models. And then you need people in these organizations and also in, in our firm who understand what do we want to be responsible for? What are these values and how do we, how can we put them in the model? And I think that's a really important um, question. And, and frankly, it's also not a black and white thing, right? It's like with everything where you bake in values and responsibility, there is always room for, um, for error. And probably you will get things wrong. Hopefully they don't immediately cost anybody their life, right? Um, but if you, for example, another another example away from autonomous driving would be creditworthiness. If you're in a bank and you do creditworthiness um, models, how do you now understand what is discrimination based on ability to pay back a loan? 
And what is discrimination you don't want because it might look sexist or racist. <laughs> and ah, even if there is like legitimate discrimination, do you want that actually? So, and, and in finance, it's often actually interesting. I used to work in microfinance in India and there there's a strong bias, like microfinance usually doesn't operate with men. It's usually a domain where you give loans to women because they're better creditors. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm actually not sure this was back in 2008, so I'm not sure how they're dealing with this, uh, how, how this has evolved since then. But it's just an experience. Basically say, okay, women are better creditors, so we're just going to work with women. And so, right, this is this has implications. So what do you want to get right? What Maybe the way we approach it, what do we really not want to get wrong? Right, and something you will, there will probably always, if you try to look at biases, probably you'll always end up with something. But because of this matter of scale, you're really trying to build teams that are very diverse, so you don't have blind spots that you bake into a model. I think that's the, the crucial part. And yeah, we help, obviously we have some experts in the team and we help our clients do this, but it's it's usually not a, oh, we work down this checklist, you check this once, you're all set, go. It's like diversity and and ethics and value in any organization. You have to live it, you have to question yourself again. It's hard. What are some applications of AI that you think are really most promising today and maybe going a little bit into the future, but also, let's say, not too unimaginable. Yeah, I mean, that's the danger of AI. You're kind of always talking about this on the sci-fi level, right? And everybody's like, yeah, but what can I do today? <laughs> so I think two, three fields of applications I think are very exciting and actually very feasible or right, things are already being done or can be done in the near future. One is healthcare. So for example, in diagnostics, right, in a lot of countries, you don't have enough specialist medical professionals. And so the matter of like rolling out treatments at scale to populations is quite critical. And even in Germany, I mean, we're based in Germany here. Um, even if you go to some rural areas in Germany, you don't have, for example, gynecologists or, or dermapathologists, you know, or, or something like this. So This is something that's already feasible today to basically diagnose people, like take an image of your skin or your mam mammography or something like that and just say, hey, this is, you need to see a doctor, or you you need treatment. Taking this one, one level further, right, is sort of personalized medicine. So saying, hey, we have all these diseases, we have a lot of very rare diseases, or we have a lot of things where we need to actually tailor the treatment quite well to individuals. And this is actually something that we we know we can solve, right? We know we're going to get there. It's um, already possible in some areas and it's, I would say, within reach, right? It's not something that we cannot imagine that will never happen. And I think that's so exciting when you think about, you know, the effect that drugs have on your body and you can maybe minimize side effects and you can just maximize your health outcome. I think that's just amazing, right? The potential you have there and also prevention, early detection of disease and so on. So I think it's, it's really such, a, such a powerful application of how AI can make our lives just better. And where we actually have real resource constraints today because we, I mean, there are a lot of people who don't have access to good healthcare and, and where we just realize we need something that's more scalable. A second area is sustainability. I think a lot of things, AI can be very powerful in these settings where you have limited resources and you still want to I would say, improve your level of service, right? Like in healthcare, I don't want people to get the technology from 20 years ago. I want them to get today's technology, but at scale. So that's great for machine learning. I think sustainability is, is, is very similar. How do we understand weather patterns better? How do we understand 
For example, you know, there's obviously like detecting wildfires in their directions, detecting sort of how is vegetation changing. If you think about satellite imaging, um, if you think about resource efficient production, there are a lot of use cases that are feasible today that you can do and you can actually have real impact on your business. And the third area I find very fascinating and that I think in Corona um, has suffered a lot is education. You know, um, really? you, yeah, because um, there are a lot of, and, and this I would say is already a little bit more advanced in the US, but um, so making the whole learning journey of children better, I think we realize we can, we can improve, right? And yes, making it more, more, more personal and more tailored to the learning success of an individual student that's kind of adaptive learning so understanding which exercises are you are you performing well which ones aren't you so understanding what's your gap what's actually the competence you're missing and then understanding how do you learn well do you learn well with a video or by reading it and by this type of exercise or so on so kind of really making this an adaptive learning journey for you so you get the right content in the right format is also gonna, it's not gonna replace teachers, right? Uh, I think that's still very important, but it can for sure assist. This actually also brings us a little bit into these conversations of renaissance of humanity. I'm just like so fond of this two words coming together. And I have a quote from you here where you state here, quote unquote, innovation does not equal technology, where technology is the means to an end. Technology should serve society. And there you mentioned also renaissance of humanity where make it about people solving problems and finding solutions. And what I'm curious is to hear from you as, uh, as you also call yourself a tech optimist. <laughs> why do you think people can rediscover what is the essence of human being thanks to AI and machine learning? I think one component is that ever since technology was invented, not even machine learning, people have been wondering, will it basically free us? Right, And if you go and read Plato's Republic, you will see these concepts and he's even talking about machines and, and basically saying, this will free us. We will be able to live the good life if we're freed from menial work. In his world, those were slaves. So obviously I'm not advocating that, but now we have machine learning models to do maybe some of the menial work we don't want to do. So would it free us or would, us, would it control us? So more the big brother type scenario, always watching us, never off, right? Um, would it be a central power that would basically like more matrix style, right? Would it completely yeah, use the human being as a resource in the end? And I think that's, that's very fascinating. I obviously side with Plato. <laughs> I obviously think um, we're in a very utilitarian society in a way if we identify so completely with individual tasks that by removing them, we sort of think we become obsolete or part of our identity falls away. So I basically don't see that. I think It would be beautiful to live in a society, and it has been a human dream actually, to be freed of work and to focus on how to fill this life and this time we have with purpose and what Plato calls the good life, right? How can you be a virtuous person, whatever that means, right? That's in philosophy. <laughs> But I think that's a, that's a very beautiful concept and I, I kind of advocate it because, and, and I think that relates to modern days in the way where we have to define as societies, what is actually our purpose? What are we doing all this for as society? And this can be a political discourse, it can be a philosophical discourse, but it's for sure a societal discourse. So if we're building machine learning models, are we doing this to maximize profits? Are we doing it to save the planet? Are we doing it to make healthcare better, right? So there are all these things we can, we can use the technology for, and we as humans have to think about 
why do we want this and what do we want it for? And I think that's kind of really going back to sort of humanitarian values and thinking about what's the value of the human and not sort of also limiting the value of a human because you can perform this task, you're worth this much. But, you know, you can be virtuous in any position you're in thinking about the why and, and, the, and the purpose. And I'm also missing that a little bit. I think, um, I think also tech builders need to take more responsibility in that regard and sort of be in a, in a meaningful discussion with clients, society as a large and hey, this is what we can do with this technology beyond making you buy more stuff or something, right? So, um, but, but these are purposes we can, we can offer and we can contribute to. And oh, these are the challenges we need to face here. There seem to be a few around <laughs> when we look up today from the newspaper. And yeah, I find that very inspiring. And, I'm, and I also believe, I mean, that people essentially want to do their best wherever they are. So I'm, I have an optimistic spin on life. So yeah. That's important, especially in Berlin when it's gray in winter, <laughs> to <laughs> yes. stay optimistic and be a tech optimist. The question I would like to wrap up our conversation before my very last and very important question is really where does Europe stand here when it comes to AI adoption and your role, Nicole? Like, what do you want to do to make things better in Europe? What is your challenge for 2020? I'm here in Europe, and that's also why I joined Merantix, because I think we can we can make a difference here and we can really build technology out of Europe that is different from technology built in other places. And, you know, we, we have all the different different ingredients. We have, for example, you know, a higher number of, of AI researchers per capita in Europe than in the US and China combined. We just don't manage to commercialize it well. So bringing these, this very cool research that we're actually also producing here in Europe into impactful cases is for me, yeah, one of the most interesting topics. And I'm, for example, very, very passionate about, I mean, the use cases I mentioned before, the three areas, but also, for example, bringing AI to SMEs in, 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 in Europe, right? They are basically the backbone of our economy. There are a lot of very specialized traditional firms that have carried the wealth of, you know, Germany, of Europe through the last century. And Yeah, really finding scalable models for all these innovative companies to use AI as a technology and make it the, the, their own, for me, is really, really interesting. And yeah, I guess another whole conversation wrapped into that. But I think Europe as a whole needs to find more scalable models for this to really transform some of these industries, um, more traditional industries. And the good news is we also have a lot of resources that other continents don't have. We have these industries and these use cases and also the data that are associated with it. So it's and, and we're lucky to have you, Nicole, <laughs> one of the front runners of uh, Let's see. scalable, exciting, impactful solutions. Let's see. <laughs> Let's see. And time for the very tough question, Nicole. So who would you define and nominate as your woman author of achievement? My woman author of achievement. It sounds probably very cheesy, but I actually... I would say, as I was actually recounting a lot of these things, I would probably say my mother, to be very honest. I think she's taught me a lot about, as I was starting in my political career, if you care, do something. I think she's taught me a lot about empathy and caring about the value of humans. So all this is basically worth nothing if you don't touch and make a human life better with this. Um, and that should also be one of your highest goals in what you do. I mean, money is nice. Right. But it's it's not what you should strive for. So, yeah, caring about what you do and caring about every person you work with and what you can do that goes beyond your own egotistic uh, sort of goals. I would say that's something I, 
I really learned from my mother and I really admire her for that a lot. Thank you for mentioning her name. And thank you, Nicole, for stopping by today and really diving into the topic of AI machine learning, rediscovering this renaissance of humanity and what that means. And uh, also just highlighting some of the things that we can start already building. We can start implementing them without waiting. Thank you for that. Thanks, Daria. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave us a review. We're always excited to read them. If you want to interact with us, the guests, or the podcast listeners, then head over to our Instagram page at waa.berlin. And while you're there, make sure to check our webshop. Thank you again for listening, and we're looking forward to being back soon.